Son of Adam, Son of Heaven, O Savior and Friend, Jesus Christ, we thank You for drawing our hearts to You and bringing us back to this place to receive spiritual food, to be given light and strength, help, and stability. I pray that you would use me as your servant to bring these things to your people through your true, inspired, inerrant word. pray this all. Amen. There was a beautiful little rain today. I don't know if you experienced that on your drive home. I love the rain. It reminds me of where I grew up, where it rained every day. I always also enjoy rain in California because Californians don't know how to handle rain. Remember one of my first rain showers at Grace Community Church, and you know how it is. There's like various buildings, and you kind of have to be outdoors to get from one building to the next. People are huddling underneath the shelter to hide from the little sprinkle of rain that's coming down as though it's got acid in it or something. No, those aren't the kinds of showers we have in Minnesota. We have thunderstorms in Minnesota. Shakes your world apart. I particularly love the thunderstorms that that slowly come all day long. Not that I like the humid part of the storm coming, but, but that evening right before a big thunderstorm. You know it's coming. It's been coming all day. And, and that night as it's dark outside, you can walk outside and, and you, see, you see lightning forming and the whole sky being lit up and everything around you being lit up. And then as the storm comes closer and closer, it begins to thunder and rumble. There's something about thunder. It's just terrifying. It's everywhere. The lightning's kind of, kind of shocking because you see everything, but the thunder, the thunder can be frightening. It seems so close, so dangerous, so loud, so powerful. Steve Lawson wrote about Luther that he had two books that he loved. Two books of the Bible that he loved. Romans and Psalms. And Galatians probably too. It should be in there. But uh, Steve Lawson's making a point here. He said Romans gave Luther his theology, but it was the Psalms that gave him his thunder. Romans gave him theological clarity, but it was the Psalms, the book of Psalms, they gave him the thunder of God. That, that gave him boldness and courage and fear that shook his world upside down and enabled him to stand when so many fled. Tonight we have a, a sermon of providence. Technically, I wrote this sermon 
two years ago during COVID when I was expecting Steve to go down at any time. <laughs> and actually, I was going to give it, but then the, the evening service I was scheduled to give it, everyone in our church was also down, so we just canceled service. But this sermon, therefore, is given for today and for tonight, and it's from the book of Psalms. And I pray it will serve as both lightning and thunder in your life give you clarity about who your God is, and give you fear in His presence. My task this evening, my job you could say, is simple. I want to give you worship ammo. I want to give you a reason to praise your God and to worship Him. The sermon in a sentence is this, blessed are those whose God is the Lord. Blessed are those whose God is the Lord. What would you say about yourself tonight? Would you say, I am blessed to stand before this God and worship with His people? Our message tonight is to instill in us a sense that we are blessed to stand with God's people and worship Him. Blessed are those people whose God is the Lord, who can sing His praises. Blessed are you if you can stand here and sing His praises. Who are you with your background that you should be able and be made to stand here and worship Him? And who are you that you should belong to a good and faithful God like He? We're going to follow the actions and the characteristics of our God towards sinners tonight. David is this psalm's writer. He is exuberant to tell you about his God and wants you to to experience the same God of strength, the same God of mercy, the same God of grace with him. He can't wait to tell you about his God. He wants to shake you up and cause you to say, blessed am I as well, because this is my God too. Let's hear what David the prophet has to say. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Written to cause you to worship your God for His strength, for His faithfulness, for His mercy, and for His grace. Psalm 32. Of David it writes, a masculine, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you 
and my iniquity. I did not cover up. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh. And you, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is holy, let every holy one pray to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You guard me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I will give you insight and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose harnesses are bit and bridle to control them. Otherwise, they will not come near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in Yahweh, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Notice that first word that David writes for us, oh, second word actually, ESV, LSB. It's been a tough transition for me. The second word David writes, blessed. How blessed. This word is particularly prominent in the first book of Psalms, book one. In Psalms and Proverbs, to be blessed means to be happy flourishing, favored, to be in an enviable state. You're familiar with Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the one who orders his life in the delight of God's instruction. This is a flourishing person. He is like a tree. Psalm 2 verse 12. Blessed is the one who does not rebel against God's king. This person is in an enviable state because he escapes God's judgment. Psalm 33, verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, it says, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Blessed are those, envious are those, prosperous are those, favored are those who are in a covenant relationship with their God, They are His heritage. Let's look at reasons tonight. Reasons we should praise God and say, blessed am I. The reasons are simple, and you'll you'll see them clearly. Reasons to say, blessed am I, because your God pursues, your God cleanses, your God perseveres, and your God instructs sinners in the way they should go the first characteristic of our of our god that leads us to say blessed am i is your god pursues sinners blessed am i my god pursues me in my sin you see it there in the first two verses of our psalm 
How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account and whose spirit there is no deceit. Now David is not talking about some hypothetical unknown sinner here. David is talking about a real flesh and blood individual. David is talking about himself. He's talking about his transgression most likely. He's talking about his sin and his iniquity. What is David talking about? Well, there are many times in David's life that he sinned. I'm inclined to take this psalm as written by David a little bit after the whole escapade with Bathsheba. We often think of Psalm 51 as the Bathsheba sin psalm, uh, but there's no reason why there couldn't have been more than one. There's no reason why this also might not be connected. If anything, this psalm may be an answer to David's request at the psalm at the end of Psalm 51 to enable him to teach transgressors his ways. Psalm 51:13 David makes this request in his prayer of repentance, Lord, use this to enable me to do evangelism to teach sinners your ways. Yeah, David knew a thing or two about how God deals with sinners because David was a sinner. And godly repentance has led David now to an opportunity to tell others about his God. So, let's just suggest that that's the context. Let's, let's kind of remind ourselves of what was going on in David's life around the time of Bathsheba. Remember, David was a, a great man of God. He was chosen by God to be king, even at a very young age in 1 Samuel 16. Nobody thought he was going to be king. He was found by God to have a heart that was pleasing to God. And he became not only one of the great kings of Israel, but he also became one of the great worship pastors of all time. That was for you, Darren. David had everything. He had a kingdom established by an eternal covenant. He had a dominant military presence in the Middle East in a time of of, uh, political... uh, vacuum of power he also had a big family with many wives which actually is kind of a curse as you will find out later in second samuel but in second samuel 11 something is off with david and many people have noticed this david is not where he's supposed to be it says in Second uh, Samuel 11, now it happened in the spring at the time when kings go to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Instead of going out to battle, which the narrator specifically says kings normally do, David stayed in Jerusalem. No comment is made. The narrator just continues to go on with the story mysteriously. He says one night David is walking back and forth on his roof. Matter of fact, the the verb language, the the choice of the, the, the verb there suggests that he was going back and forth for a good bit of time as if he was looking for something. 
or thinking about something or meditating about something or plotting or planning something or waiting for someone. There is a a beautiful woman that he sees bathing, Bathsheba, and a number of sinful acts rapidly occur in succession at this point. First off, he doesn't cover his eyes or run away. He inquires about who this woman is. When he asks his servants, they reply, almost in warning tones, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? It's as if, I mean, if, if Eliam is the same Eliam that's mentioned in 2 Samuel 23, 34, these servants are essentially saying, is this not the daughter of one of your best fighters? And the granddaughter of one of your wisest counselors, that's Ahithophel, and the wife of one of your mighty men, the servants are intentionally introducing this woman as someone that is married, and not only married, but in a family that's closely connected with David. But David does not cover his eyes. And David doesn't cover his desire for her. Instead, he takes her as if she were his wife. She, as a consequence, becomes pregnant. Then David, as a consequence, tries to cover his evil deed by bringing Uriah home to sleep with his wife. So perhaps people, Uriah, would think that he did it. But Uriah, too honorable, to go home and sleep with his wife while the army is sleeping outside, refuses to leave David's court and sleeps with the servants even after David attempts to get him drunk. Thus, as a consequence of this, David orders Joab, the commander of the army, to put Uriah in a vulnerable position so that he would be killed. Then, after all this occurs, David marries Bathsheba and claims the child as his own. And everything is left neat and tidy. The perfect crime. David thinks he's pulled off the perfect cover up. But then we see in the story that there was one person that David could not cover his sin before. The very last verse. The understatement of the century, by the way. The thing that David had done was evil in the sight of Yahweh. The thing that David had done, all of it, one thing, was evil. And then in 2 Samuel 12, verse 1, because it was evil in Yahweh's sight, what does Yahweh do? He sends Nathan, his prophet, to David. Now, why why do we need all this detail? Uh, This is the background, definitely, of Psalm 51, and it helps us understand that psalm very well. 
And it could very well be the background of our psalm as well. Notice in both this psalm and 2 Samuel 11 and 12, there seems to be a sequence of time in which David is trying to cover over his sin. And he's trying to get away from the consequence of sin. He's not confessing his sin. There's a parallel background situation that we don't necessarily see anywhere else, but this might not be also the background of this psalm. I'm not dogmatic about it. It's not absolutely necessary that we know the historical background of this psalm. The the psalm actually doesn't tell us what the historical background is, so I don't need historical background. So why do we go through all of this background detail? I just want to illustrate that David knew how God pursued sinners in their sin. David writes this as someone who is familiar with what it was like to be a sinner before God. Even as he was a man that was beloved by God, that was uh, given covenant promises from God, David knew what it was like to be a sinner. But the real purpose I have in this background information is I see this story as giving us imaginary handles and illustrative legs. This psalm walks on its feet as we attach it to this story of David and Bathsheba. We've got to remember this, that Psalms were not written in ivory towers separated from real life. Psalms were written in the muck and the mud of everyday life. And it's helpful for us to put legs and feet on every one of them. David lived every single term that he described in this psalm. For example, look at this. The first couple of verses, verses 1 and 2, he uses the word transgression. He uses the word covered. He uses the word iniquity. He uses the word deceit. Transgression in verse 1 and 5 means to, to breach or cross a boundary. It is to cross a line. It is to commit an act of intentional rebellion against a known standard. It is to say, there is a fence here and there is a sign that says, do not cross and I'm going to trespass, transgress. David didn't cover his eyes as he knew he should. He didn't hesitate or back off when the servant said, the wife of. He went forward, he kept looking, he fetched her. He said, I know this is sin, but I want this more than I want God. This was a horrible, intentional act of deliberate, unbelieving rebellion. This is a transgression. Or the word sin The word sin in verse 1 and verse 5 means to miss the mark, means to fall short. It is an archery term, lexicons will tell you. It's, it's, It's used of an arrow being shot at a target and falling short of its goal. And perhaps there's a popular interpretation of what was going on in David in 2 Samuel 11, right? David wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing, right? 
Proverbs 6 suggests that the young man who falls into lust and temptation isn't working hard. It's surrounded in this context of the danger of a sluggard and his living and being idle. And then in that context, we have the adulteress luring this young man away. And there's a good theological lesson for young men. Man, if you have nothing to do, if you're bored, if you have no work, you're going to fall into increased temptation. Maybe that's what some would say is the point of 2 Samuel 11. David wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. But I worry that that concept alone perhaps weakens the sense that David wants here in talking about sin. It's not just that David wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. It's, it's not as though David was, you know, shooting his arrows in generally the right direction, trying to pursue and honor God generally, and just kind of slipped in a little bit with Bathsheba. The picture we have of David is much worse than falling short. Oh, We have Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, in fact, rebuking David in no uncertain terms. He accuses David of not just falling short, but he accuses David of despising the word of the Lord, utterly scorning God. That's 12.9 and 12.14. These are, get this, bad boy words. You are a bad man, David. Matter of fact, Saul is never accused of despising God's word. These are, uh, despising God's word, is language reserved for evil men, the evil sons of Eli and Goliath himself. This is a sinner of sinners. To use the archery language again, this is not just falling short. This, that's not what sin is. It's not just falling short of the goal. David is aiming his arrows into the judge's stand to kill the judge. This is David's sin. Or the word iniquity, David uses this in verse 2 and 5 and 5 again. This refers to something that's crooked or twisted and filled with the guilt of sin. It's the burden of sin that you bear for transgressing, for falling short. In 2 Samuel 11, David's evil is filled with the burden of iniquity. It's heavy. It should be heavy upon him. In, in 2 Samuel 11, verse 8, David's evil is premeditated evil. David twists his power to cover up and to get what he wants. There's a stench of guilt about David. David also used his power to cause others to sin and do evil. David is full of iniquity. And David also is full of deceit. We see this in verse 2. It means to lie or to deceive. David tried to cover up his sin. And did you see it in the story? He tried it again and again. First effort didn't work, so he deceived to try another way. He kept trying to cover his sin. We even sense that David was a bit self-deceived by the end of the story. I didn't really go into it, but 2 Samuel 12 paints a picture of a David much removed from 2 Samuel 11, who's not even thinking in terms of guilt. It doesn't even have a conscience that's pricking him anymore. Nathan comes to David and tells him a story of a sinner very much like David. You know, he took the lamb, 
from the poor man. And David can't spiritually connect the dots. He has no conscience issue. Matter of fact, it is quite striking. David becomes furious at the man who takes the poor man's land. He he gets righteously indignant. He decrees judgment on the man and never even thinks about himself. David covered his sin and as a result of his deceit, he himself was self-deceived. That is the consequence of sin. So David knew what it was like to be a sinner before God. He knew what it meant to bear guilt. He knew what it meant to be, be, be exposed also before God. But look at this. Not only did David know what it was like to be a sinner before God, he also knew what it was like to have this God after him. Look at, look at verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent about my sins, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was dried up as with the heat of summer. Think about that. Our God does not let us alone in our sin. He comes after us. Matter of fact, we may experience physical problems because He is after us about our sins. The central thrust of this section here is Your hand was heavy upon Me. Why were his bones wasting away? Why was his strength dried up? Uh, bones wasting away, of course, is indicative of an internal, internal weakness. David perhaps is describing an a, a, a internal spiritual weakness about him. His strength dried up. That refers to a spirit, a physical inability, a, a physical ability that's also hindered. David feels weak within, and he feels weak without. Why is he feeling this way? Because his God is heavy upon him. Now, the action of the verb, your hand is heavy upon me, is action of repeated nature. God's hand had been on his heart causing this spiritual depression and had been weakening David from within. It's an important lesson to remember about why you're sad sometimes. Spiritual depression does not always come from sin, but when it comes, this is how it may look. And it's all because David kept silent. David tried to cover. David tried to hide but his God came after him. In all of this, David really is describing a spiritual condition, though, of someone who is blessed. Think about that. When your God is after you and your insides are shaken up by it and your outside is weakened by it, you are blessed because God is not leaving you alone to continue in sin. It's a blessed thing to be a child of this God. A God who is after you. This is only the first action of God. It's a glorious one, but it's only the first step. 
But you won't be blessed if this is all God does. The second characteristic of God that leads us to say, blessed am I, is this. Your God cleanses sinners. My God cleanses, removes the iniquity of my sin. The second half of verse 5. or so, uh, Sorry, verse 5, the beginning, the first half. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not cover up. I said I will confess my transgression to Yahweh. Yes, God exposes, but He exposes sin in His people so that He may also cleanse. Notice God's heavy hand on David's soul was unrelenting, but it was unrelenting for a purpose. It was for the purpose of David acknowledging, confessing, admitting. To acknowledge my sin. It's an interesting uh, verb form. It takes a causative form of the verb to know. Literally meaning, I cause you to know. That's what acknowledge means. Uh, This focuses on the sinner's need to fully declare their sin as sin before God. By the way, this does not mean that God is at all in the dark about your sin. It's not as if God needs information. It's not as though God is hoping that you'll come so that you'll tell Him what's going on because He doesn't know what's going on at all. God already knows everything, as we saw in Psalm 139 when I preached it. And then when Steve preached it two weeks after, if you remember that day. Remember Psalm 139, 1-3, O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. God has complete and perfect knowledge of me. Then he describes this knowledge. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, God knows every move I make. You discern my thoughts from afar. God knows every motivation of that movement. He understands exactly why I'm doing something. Then it says, you scrutinize my path. God has a penetrating, evaluating knowledge of me. He winnows me as they would winnow wheat, separating the chaff from the wheat. He knows every aspect of my life. My path and my lying down are intimately acquainted. Uh, You are intimately acquainted with all of my ways. There is not a single moment of my day or my daily routine that you do not understand altogether. Psalm 139, 11 through 12, uh, David or the psalmist goes on to say that even in the darkest, scariest places where you are, are tempted to feel most inclined to being alone or cut off from knowledge or power, even there God sees you as though it is daylight. Notice the, the application of the psalm goes two ways. It's a, it's a two-edged sword, if you will. Our God is the same in every circumstance. And what makes Him wondrously blessed and a source of comfort to, to one person makes Him a terror in his frightening knowledge, in his claustrophobic awareness. This is who our God is. 
And it's all because God knows everything and doesn't need our confession to come up to speed with where we are at. What do you do? What should you do, the sinner, when your sin is exposed by God to you? God is after that we acknowledge our sin. This means we agree with God in calling sin what He calls sin. That is what it means, by the way, to acknowledge my sin before you, not cover up my iniquity. By the way, it's not enough that you just acknowledge part of your sin. Look at verse 2 of Psalm 32 again. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account, and whose spirit there is no deceit this person is blessed because god does not count their iniquity against them because god forgives all of their sin you could say like this if you hold back from confessing you hold back from receiving the joy of god's forgiveness and removing the burden of iniquity from you We must acknowledge all of our sin. What is the result when you confess and acknowledge your sin and are in full agreement with God? I love it. I love the second half of verse 5. You, the psalmist says, David says, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The you there is emphatic. It almost has a shock quality to it. You, you of all people, my seemingly worst enemy, worst nightmare, greatest antagonist, you are the one who forgave the guilt and the iniquity of my sin. What do we make of this need of confessing? Well, first off, let's say uh, there is great joy to be found in this truth, isn't there? That God forgives our sin when we confess. But there's also great trouble to be found in this truth as well. Confessing and acknowledging your sin to God is crucial to cleansing, but you must confess and not cover up any more. It is great news, but it is troubling news as well. This is required in the life of the believer and unbeliever. It is required in the conversion of the unbeliever. Romans 10, 9-10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. But this is also the daily need of the believer. 1 John 1, 9 and 2, 1 says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Confessing is, is necessary. Is necessary to be in a right relationship with God before and during. But what happens after you confess? The sinner, the forgiven sinner, is exuberant to to share the good news of God's forgiveness with others. But he also 
in eagerly wanting to share the good news of God's forgiveness also has a warning for them. God cleanses sinners, David says in Psalm 32. But you better not mess around with God. Look at verse 6. Therefore let every holy one pray to you. Blessed are you. Let every holy one pray to you. At a time when you may be found. God may be found. Surely, in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. Notice this, there is a warning as well. You can go to God, but you can't mess around with this God. You must go to Him in the time that He may be found. And it's my charge as a Gospel minister, even tonight, to provide you not only with the free grace of God in Christ that you can be forgiven of all of your sins, but also to sternly warn you in the manner of Hebrews 3, not to harden your heart, not to wait. Come today as He has given you a chance. Hebrews 3, 7 and 8 says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Hebrews 3, 18 through 19 says, And with whom did He swear that, he, that they would not enter His rest, but with those who were disobedient? So we see those who are disobedient were unable to enter because of unbelief. You can go to God with your sin, and He will forgive the iniquity of your sin. He Himself, but you better not mess around and wait. Why must you hurry? There is a storm coming. There is a flood racing. There is a God of judgment who brings a storm to whom you must tremble. The second half of verse 6, Surely in the flood of great waters they will not reach Him. It's like a flash flood, it seems, as almost that David is describing here, that leaves no one an escape, that lays every tree bare, that cuts down every house from its foundation, that destroys everything in its path. And this is speaking of how God deals with people who do not confess their sin. And I would even suggest to you that this is speaking of how God deals with believers when they do not confess their sin. Because let every holy one who prays to you, surely in the flood it will not reach you. But this also suggests of a judgment that God brings on everyone, right? There is a judgment coming that will catch all in its path. God's children, He sends trouble into their lives to get their attention, but those who remain in unrepentant sin and unbelief, destruction that is eternal. So you should flee to Him while His mercy can be found. There's a blessing for confessing that God can be found and God can forgive. There's a third characteristic, though, of God that leads us to say, blessed are we? God perseveres sinners. God preserves sinners. 
God causes them to stand. God strengthens them. That's why we should say, blessed am I. Notice verse 7. And, and just think about the guy who's writing this. You are my hiding place. You guard me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Remember who, who David was? Remember what David did? This is shocking. This is very bold. But this is how a forgiven sinner can hope in God. You have forgiven the iniquity of my sin, and you now are my hiding place. It sounds very similar to Romans 8, 38 through 39. I am convinced, Paul writes, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything, any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, look at what you the forgiven sinner can say about your God. I love verse 7. You can say that He is a hiding place to you. A place of refuge, a place of protection, a shelter, right? There is a storm coming and there is no human defenses or shelters that will cause you to escape from it. There is a sun zapping you Removing all of your strength, as David told us earlier, was his experience. And there is only one place of shade that you can find for deliverance. Now hear me, believer, the guilt of your sin will zap your strength unless you flee to God through the Gospel. And hear me also, unbeliever, the guilt of your sin will leave you defenseless before this God and before the raging waves of his wrath. And you can only find refuge from its torrents in the cross of Christ. Christ is a hiding place to you when the guilt of your sin creeps back in. You bring your sin to Christ and find a hiding place. But also, God preserves you guard me from trouble, it says. It means to keep, to guard, to be a watchman, to be a, 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 a source of divine protection. God preserves His people through the power of His Holy Spirit. He empowers them to say no to sin and yes to obedience. Believers can walk according to God's will. Also means... In God guarding us, of course, it means that God will not let us go through sin easily. His hand will be heavy upon us until we acknowledge our sin. And this is what it is like to have God in your life. You have a God who guards you from trouble. And you have a God who surrounds you with songs of deliverance. It's it's a word that's sometimes used of a wall around a city that's encircling for protection. The forgiven sinner is not alone. Not alone with God. Notice they are also surrounded by sinners exalting with them in jubilant song, right? You surround me with songs of deliverance. This is who the believer is. They, they are someone 
who exalts, worships in the God who preserves them, who guards them, who keeps them. Blessed am I, my God guards me. Let's look at a fourth characteristic of God towards sinners that leads us to say, blessed are we. Your God instructs sinners. Our God teaches us in the way that we should go. Our God gives us direction, instruction. And notice just the, the shift throughout this psalm. A fun little, fun little devotional game you can play in the morning with your psalm of the day. Try to figure out who the psalmist is talking to. He shifts perspective sometimes. First, David is speaking to himself about his sin in the first five verses. Then David is speaking to God in verse 5. Then he is speaking to the godly in verse 6. And then he speaks to God about himself in verse 7. And now in verse 8, he appears to be speaking to someone else. But he speaks as a prophet who has, it seems, received instruction from the Lord Himself. And for the remainder of this psalm, he seems to take up the desire of the end of Psalm 51 to be an instructor of sinners. In fact, this appears to be David delivering the message he has received personally from God, in the voice of God, as if God Himself is speaking through David. What does he say in verse 8? I will give you insight and instruct you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose harnesses are bit and bridle to control them. Otherwise, they will not come near you. This is God speaking to people. This is God saying, I will instruct sinners. There's an offering and there's a warning in this. Notice first the the offer of God's instruction here. God will instruct sinners, I love it, verse 8, with my eye upon you. God is not a distant God who angrily wants you to obey and stop and confess. No, He wants you to grow in righteousness. And notice also, while he's giving instruction, he is giving instruction to you with his eye upon you. It is a close and watching eye that cares, that's helping, that's instructing, that knows you as he is instructing you with my eye upon you. I will instruct you and keep you close and keep close to you. He promises to shepherd us in the way of righteousness with his eye upon us. He is very much like a shepherd, you could say, in the way he corrects. Just this morning, in youth group, we were talking about the message of 2 Timothy, and we, we came upon 2 Timothy 3.16-17, through 17, and we see here the instruction of our God with His eye upon us. It says this, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. With God's teaching, He is telling us how to walk with God. 
with God's reproofing, a reproving and reproof, He is stopping us in our sin and goes to get us when we wander off the path. And when God is correcting us through His Word, He is helping us get back to the path of walking with God. And when God is training us in righteousness, He walks with us and besides us and strengthens us through His Word to obey Him better in the future. This is how the Word of God operates in our life. With His eye upon us. There's an offer of instruction of a good God who will guide you in everything you need in this life. But there's also the warning of God's instruction as well. The blessedness of God's instruction and the warning of God's instruction. Don't be like a horse. Don't be like a mule. This goes over real well in youth ministry. No, I'm just playing. Animals. Animals are always pushing back. They're always resisting. They're always arguing. They're always seeing how far they can push against the bit and the bridle. What kind of correction, by the way, does God use for people like that who are always pushing against His instruction? He uses a bit and a bridle, tough love to bring them and keep them near. What does He say? Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding. In the original, I think it means stupid. Whose harnesses are bit and bridle to control them. Otherwise, they will not come near you. God has to use a bit and a bridle to get you to come to Him. It's almost as if David's saying, don't be like me. Because you better be sure that God will get you. There's a warning of instruction. And let's just give one final characteristic of God towards sinners that leads us to conclude, blessed are we. Your God finally gladdens sinners. Your God gladdens sinners. The forgiven have many ways in which their lives are to be contrasted to the world. They, they are a contrast to the world in their humble disposition, in their spiritual position. They are a contrast to the world in their hunger for God's Word, and they are a contrast to the world in their, in their, their activity and action under trial because they can go through trial with an eternal hope. The believers, the forgiven, have a great contrast to offer to this world, but Check out the final contrast we see between the forgiven ones and the covering ones. And we see this in the final two verses, 10 and 11. It's a contrast between the glad and the sorrowful. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in Yahweh, loving kindness shall surround him. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. And then in verse 11, Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Be glad. We have people who are 
sorrowing and people who are in gladness. Many are the pains, literally, of the wicked. The one who refuses to clean or confess their sin or agree with God will bear the full burden of guilt and fear in their sin. Do not be stubborn like that mule. Don't be burden-bearing. Waters, waters of anxiety and depression will come. But notice the second group, the glad ones. Steadfast love surrounds them. God's loving, loyal protection and joy There's gladness of fellowship. There's burden-free living for those who are forgiven. God gladdens the heart of sinners. How does he do this? Just list a few ways. He gladdens you when he pursues you when you wander off the path. Doesn't he? He puts his heavy hand upon you so that your strength is zapped like the summer and your bones are weak and you can't do normal things easily anymore. He weighs heavily upon you so that you will uh, go to Him in your sin and confess and uncover and fully acknowledge your sin so that He can forgive and cast your sin far from you. And in this way, He preserves you guards you. In this way, He instructs you. In this way, He brings you back to the path of righteousness and continues with you on that path all the way home. And all that to say, that is a glad person. That is a person that worships their God. Blessed am I. Blessed am I. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this evening and we pray that your Your hand would work on us through your word. We're so undeserving of your covenant love that comes after us and will not leave us alone in our sin. Help us to worship you higher and deeper and lower. Higher in our understanding of you, deeper in our trust for you, and lower in our fear of you. Pray this all in your Son Jesus' name. Amen.